Chapter 11, Time for Completion In this latest episode of the podcast, arising out of the publication of the fourth edition of Wilmot Smith on Construction Contracts, I'm going to be talking to Nicholas Higgs, a barrister at 39 Essex, who was involved in the production and and editing of Chapter 11, Time for Completion. Um, Nick, was this the first book that you, uh, book editing exercise that you'd been uh, involved in over the years? It's not the first, but it's the one I've been most interested in. Um, I did help on Shackleton on meetings previously, which... um, Well, there we are. Whilst fascinating is maybe not my core area of competency. No, but but, uh, you um, rolled your sleeves up and got involved in... The, the fourth edition of Wilmot Smith, and I think you put a lot of time into uh, the, the various chapters that you were involved in. Yes, um, it's definitely an undertaking to be involved in a book like this. It's it's fascinating and it's great because it gets you back to the case law, which is what being at the bar is all about, um, which is very enjoyable. But yes, it was it was quite an effort. Lord Justice Coulson's been heard to say that when you're editing a book for a new edition you often think it'd be simpler just to start at the beginning again and I'm, i think those of us who've done it know exactly what he means exactly yes i can uh, certainly get on board with that comment I the, think. The, the um the, the three areas i think that are that arise in um, time for completion are on the obviously the uh, penalty doctrine and the effect of the cavendish case on the law of penalties um Secondly, liquidated damages after the decision in triple point, which we'll deal with uh, separately. And thirdly, what practical completion is after Mears. Shall we take the third of those first? Those are the three, aren't they, principal areas of development during the, the life of the third edition going up to the fourth? Yes, I think that's right. There are some other um, new cases, um, partly around the contra preferentum rule. rule. Um, or, or the rule that used to be contra preferentum, which when you try now to find, you see judge after judge saying it's either abolished or of no practical effect. Exactly. I'm, rather, I'm rather sad about that. I always found the contra preferentum rule really quite useful in a tight spot. But but uh, yes. every time I refer to it now, people look at you as if, don't you realise that's been got rid of? And you say, but look at this authority. Whoa. <laughs> um, anyway, it's all, it's, all that, it's all that sort of... Um, uh, I was about to say nonsense, because that would be unfair, all of that reliance on simple, plain language rather than uh, abstruse principles. Mears and Costplan is the um, case that um, Lord Justice Coulson um, heard in 2019 in the Court of Appeal. And this was a slightly interesting one, because rather than a contractor desperately trying to get practical completion certified, as is so often the case, um, this was a leaseholder trying to prevent it being certified because it meant they could get out of um, a lease for some student accommodation down in Plymouth. Um, And the basis of their reasoning was that all the rooms were 3% smaller than they're meant to be, or at least a significant proportion of them. Just doing the maths, I was working out, well, what does that actually mean? That's basically losing the floor area to the skirting around your student accommodation. So it's a very small amount. Um, and and the, the general thrust of um, what came out from Mears was that, <laughs> helpfully, um, Lord Jessica Coulson said, um, 
practical completion is easier to recognise than define, which sounds like a uh, typical judicial remark, which is of some use, but not great help to us. But the short point is, it hasn't got to be perfect. Isn't isn't that stripped of all the verbiage? Exactly, yes. Um, It's got to look like it's practically complete. I think you could almost sum up Mears as. And effectively, they were following some of the old decisions of the ORs, weren't they? Yes, yes. Uh, who had taken a fairly pragmatic view of things, and it's returning to that pragmatism to a certain extent, I think. I don't want to detract from the intellectual analysis in the book, but for me, the most significant thing about Mears is the fact that Lord Justice Newey is approving the decisions decisions of his honour, J- Judge John Newey, Queen's Counsel. Um, <laughs> and I, for me, that was very sweet, because John Newey is one of the most underappreciated construction law judges ever. He was a marvellous judge, and the fact that he made... V- steered the, the ORs through very difficult territory uh, and when he departed sadly we things didn't improve for a while but he um the fact that his son now Lord Justice Appeal was able to approve his father's decision struck me um, as old softy as I am as as very nice mm. uh, Cavendish of course modifying would you say or, or softening the law on penalties whatever the words of their lordships in the Supreme Court? Yes, I think they'd say clarifying. Um, and they would say that, wouldn't they? They would, of course. Um, it is an important point. I mean, it was a case that came out only shortly after the previous edition, so it's been in play for some time. But it may the previous law, obviously, was Dunlop, um, and are your damages a genuine pre-estimate of loss, which sounds fairly straightforward. And I think it is, if you're a commercial client who's got a building to let, you know exactly how much you're going to lose if this is going to be late. Or if you've got a toll road, you know how how much toll revenue you're not going to recover. If you're a public sector client, and having worked for a number of them in a previous life, it can be quite difficult to provide a genuine estimate of what is your loss for not having this asset that you've paid for. You might have some additional supervision that you're going to have to pay for while the contract is carrying on. But measuring the loss to the public at large for not having this road or bridge finished um, can be a bit of a conundrum sometimes. And there are many spreadsheets generated to try and um, work out what is a genuine pre-estimate of loss. So I think we've moved away from that, um, which I think is sensible. And again, it's a slightly more pragmatic and commercial view of what to liquidated damages do and when are they a penalty. Um, which Not I, had I universal support across the world, has it? No, no. And I, I think, you know, it's been the language of construction lawyers for some time. Is it a genuine pre-estimate of loss or not? And we become somewhat wedded to those phrases that we remember well. Um, but I, I think it reflects, as you were saying earlier, a slight change in emphasis from the senior courts in returning to well, what what did the parties agree in their written contract? And we're going to give that commercial effect. And we're not going to use other doctrines um, to change what the parties have agreed, where they've clearly agreed something. Well, when, when there's so much more statutory intervention nowadays, and that's not that surprising, is it? Because the courts can say freedom of bargaining... Um, for, 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 you know, parties of equal bargaining power, let them get on with it and decide it. Now, we all know that's a great oversimplification, and when you open Pandora's box, there's all sorts of other things in there. But I think, um, for me, 
I, I the test may be different, but I suspect that practitioners would struggle to find cases in the past where they had, in fact, managed to get something held to be a penalty that wouldn't now be. But say the practical effect may be, may be much less. And then we come on to the third case, which is triple point, which is an odd case, isn't it? Yes, it is an odd case. I mean, I think the case that went before it was the slightly odder one, which was uh, Hall, Shivers and van der Heiden, um, in which uh, Mr. Joseph Coulson, as he then was, found that the liquidated damages provision survived termination and therefore the contractor who'd been terminated was still liable up to practical completion. And I think many people thought that sat a little oddly. Um, and triple point really is just correcting that, I think. Well, let's just see what let's just see what the Supreme Court say. I argued that in November, and we're awaiting judgment. For anyone that is interested in either the law of liquidated damages or blood sports, should go onto the Supreme Court website and watch the debate between uh, me and several of the the justices. Um, uh, a fascinating experience which I really enjoyed um, and uh, we are going to await the outcome um, I'm very glad that the book has been published before the Supreme Court gives its judgment uh, on the case because the worst thing of all would have been for um, there to have been a decision that came out just before the book to put the book out of date uh, before it was even published. It's funny when you're editing a book how you see things through slightly different eyes. You know, the timing of the judgment is most important to the timing of your, um, uh, to the timing uh, of the next edition of your book. Certainly, Triple Point in the Supreme Court will be very much part of the consideration uh, of the next edition of Wilmot Smith uh, on construction contracts. Uh, of course, because we're all scarred by this experience we're starting this next edition now so as to uh, avoid the last minute sprint we want to turn this into a marathon rather than a sprint over 10 miles so um thank you very much for your work on it uh, and thank you very much for joining me this afternoon to share some of it perhaps we can update this podcast when the supreme court gives the decision in triple point exactly well great to talk to you paul thank you very much